0: Welcome to the Zoo Town Affordable Housing Podcast. Affordable is stable. Afford means that you're able to make your wages last through different rent and expenses, while even retaining some senses. Stability with the ability to do things differently.
1: Greetings and thank you so much for listening to ZAP, the Zootown Affordable Housing Podcast. My name is Becca, and I will be your host and voice gatherer for the duration of this exploration into the current housing crisis facing Missoula and the nation. If you or anyone you know would like to contribute an interview, if you want more information, or to find out how to support ZAP, please visit rebeccakelly.podbean.com. That's Kelly with an E-Y. For the fourth episode of ZAP, I interviewed Missoula City Council member Heidi West. Heidi ended up in politics when she got involved in the cleanup of the former State Superfund site in North Missoula. Aside from her current position as City Council member representing Ward 1, she is coordinator and community organizer at the NMCDC, the North Missoula Community Development Corporation while also maintaining a creative space at the Clay Studio, and mothering her family of four. In this episode, she gives me her take on the housing policy signed by the City of Missoula in June 2019, and she also talks about her experience as the project manager for Lee Gordon Place, a local affordable townhome project available only to qualified buyers and created by the NMCDC via their land stewardship program. Heidi also shares her own personal housing story of creative resilience and making it work within the squeeze and constant challenge of financial constraints. And now, please enjoy my interview with Heidi West. So, Heidi West, you are a very involved lady in this town. You work for the North Missoula Community Development Corporation, and you are also a city council member. Yeah, yeah. So... I'm not going to tell everyone who you are. I would love it if you would just give us a little brief bio on on
2: yourself. Sure. So I moved to Missoula in 2009, and so my husband got an AmeriCorps Vista position at MUD. And so we moved onto the MUD site, and we were supposed to be here a year, and that was a little bit over 10 years ago now. I think that happens to a lot of people. And then I... Fell in love with Missoula. There's definitely a couple of things that really made this town special. And one was going to the old home resource. And I walked in and I was like, all right, you know, we can stay in this town. <laughs> and yeah, and so we, we've stayed on the north side the entire time. Kind of moved around. We moved from the mud side to a house across the alley and then eventually rented the house that we later bought also on the north side. And then I kind of came to both my job and city council through the same event, I suppose. So one of my first questions when I moved to Missoula was where's the closest Superfund site? Because I have a soil chemistry background and it was just something I'm interested in. And so I ended up moving into a house knowing full well that it was down the street from a state Superfund site. And shortly after we moved in, The DEQ issued its record of decision for that site and the cleanup plan, and um, I happened to go see the public meeting on Facebook and then went and, uh, you know, listened to their spiel and just was super upset because I didn't feel like it was good enough for our neighborhood. You know, I think um, people didn't recognize maybe what a vibrant and like growing place the north side was even 10 years ago and that it's you know really residential for the most part and how like this is some of the only land that's available for development and I walked out of there and then talked to my neighbor who is a professional photographer and then she put together this photography campaign that we put on Facebook about like our neighborhood and lots of people got involved and people wrote letters and we had neighborhood meetings and went to council and through that I kind of started working with the NMCDC and Bob and Lacey at the time you know and they were involved in having like a neighborhood cleanup fund and then it's also how I met Jason Weiner and Brian Von Losberg who were our Ward one representatives at the time and Uh, Council at the time did a resolution for it and, you know, residential level cleanup. And then in the end, the DEQ changed their record of decision, which, like, not as far as maybe we had hoped, but it was, you know, a really positive thing nonetheless for our neighborhood. And so that's kind of how I got connected to my local representatives at the time and to my current job, which is funny. And... Yeah, and then I ended up, when Jason didn't run again, I ran for his seat. I I mean, I guess that's kind of how I got to where I am today. Also, you know, I think many people in Missoula wear a lot of different hats and have, like, side gigs to, like, make it in this town. And so I also do pottery on the side and have a studio at the Clay Studio. And I work part-time for the NMCDC, and then I'm also on city council, so... And I also have my own personal crazy, like, housing story, which is kind of fun. And, yeah, so I'm involved in affordable housing at the NMCDC now. I was the project manager for Lee Gordon Place, which is on Front Street, and it's seven, our most recent additions to our community land trust, so that's seven townhouses that are now owner-occupied. And then in... My city council world of course we just um, last summer passed our housing policy and so it's just i'm constantly you know in this world from a lot of different angles so yeah
1: (laughs) and i saw your name in the housing policy and it, it just your name came up in conversation with colin bangs who was my first interview for this podcast And you really hit affordable housing from a lot of different angles. So you have your own personal story. You work part-time for the NMCDC, the North Missoula Community Development Corporation, and you're a city council member with your name on the affordable housing
2: policy. So where would you like to start? I'll start with my personal story. So I am on the older end of millennials. And so I joke a lot that um, our generation is very reliant on the millennial down payment assistance program, which is that our parents often have, in my case, my in laws have have the ability to subsidize our attempts at home ownership. I think it's really unattainable for our generation outside of that a lot of times, and so we were lucky enough to get a down payment from our in laws and so or my in laws. And so we bought a house on the north side, I think it was in 2012, from an acquaintance who wanted to get out of his mortgage. And uh, we were really sick of renting from slumlords. We've had some really horrible rental experiences in Missoula and and had to put a lot of work into like every place we rented to make them livable because that's all we could afford. And um, and so we ended up buying a house that was basically a teardown, knowing that we had a lot more ability to be self-directed or, you know, make those improvements without some landlord coming back and being like, oh, you took all that falling down wallpaper out of your kitchen? I could raise your rent. You know, I've been in those situations where, you know, very unfair and you know, very substandard. There's a lot of older, kind of substandard housing in Missoula. And so we bought this house. And when we bought it, we were on, you know, food stamps and on LEAP and all of, you know, qualified for property tax assistance and all of those programs. And so it was just this long-term vision of, like, okay, we're just going to, like, try and save like crazy. And someday we're going to make it work. And so uh, it's been, like... year and eight months since we tore down most of our house we bought a bus we lived in a bus for seven months and a school bus a 30-foot school bus and um while we yeah like basically really leveraged all the equity we had in that house to like build something that could accommodate you know our families i have two kids and a husband six chickens five chickens one day and it took finding, like, builders to work with that were willing to take the risk of working with a homeowner. Because I was like, you know, I'm going to be the general because as a homeowner you're allowed to do that. And then actually, I think a lot of times builders get maybe have bad experiences where homeowners don't do all the work they say they're going to do. And so it's been this huge process of, like, I insulated the whole house. We built cabinets from plywood, you know, like, a whole lot of sweat equity. It's insane. <laughs> but in the end, like think we're refinancing on Monday. And, like, I'm buying my own house back, basically. But, yeah, it's it's been a huge adventure. But also, like, kind of a, it was kind of a make-or-break moment where, like, if we can't do this, then there's, you know, can we stay in Missoula? sort of gamble and running a lot of numbers. And we're almost done with that. So, <laughs> you know, I think we got really lucky being able to, you know, we have some access to intergenerational wealth, if you will. Yeah, um, not that my in-laws are wealthy by any means, but I think a lot of people don't have that access, especially if you don't come from a background of home ownership, like that is our main wealth-building tool we have in our country you know and if you don't have access to that it's really hard to make that transition from being a renter to a homeowner and then you know moving up the socioeconomic ladder and so i think in my work world community land trusts play a really important role because it's it's not a tool for people that can buy a house on the you know open market rate housing market like if you can do that this isn't really set up for you but it does you know when it comes to comparing renting you know it's it's an alternative to renting that also allows you to gain equity in your home and preserves this like pool of affordable houses in our community yeah so it fills this gap that isn't created on its own
1: how is nmcdc able to do that create a land trust, put homes on it that people can afford?
2: Yeah, so back in 2000, um, there was some seed funding for it, and it, it's largely, it's heavily subsidized by federal HUD funds, so housing and
0: urban, urban development. development.
2: Yeah. And so both home funds and community development block grants grants have been used to build our CLT. Um, and so we have five single-family homes on the north side, and then we have Burn Street... Commons which is 17 units those are condos slightly different really just layouts like how things are like they're stacked units versus side by side 25 units over at Clarkport Commons and then seven at Lee Gordon Place and so the idea is that you know we are the owners and developers of these units and then we sell the units and we keep the land and that allows us to pass that subsidy on to the next buyers um, by bringing houses to the market, like, vastly under market rate. And then when the unit sells, the, the owner passes that benefit on to the next person. And perpetually, the idea is that we preserve affordability forever, ideally. As a land trust, it has
1: to stay a- affordable, right, for perpetuity? Yeah. But what happens when the land
2: value goes up? That's a great question. Um, So because we're a 501c3 in Missoula County, at least all of our... um, We've gotten the land to be tax-exempt, so that part isn't taxed at all. We do pay SIDs, so if there's a, like, a lighting SID, and SID is a special improvement district, there could be a variety of different SIDs on a property. Where, you know, You can finance your sidewalks, for example, and then you pay it back over several... Years or lighting is one that's most properties in Missoula fall under. So those still apply. Um, but the homes are taxed, but they are appraised differently from market-rate homes. And so they have their own appraisal process, and it's based on replacement value. And so it will inflate over time because replacement costs go up, uh, you know, because construction materials go up, but it doesn't inflate as quickly as our market is these days so it's a little bit more of a steady trajectory it's a little bit more predictable so it's not a good indicator just because you know houses around our developments are selling for vastly more over the past couple of years it doesn't impact their property tax values so they're a little bit isolated or insulated I should say from those market swings So a a buyer, a potential buyer of
1: one of these land trust townhomes or condominiums, uh, first of all, their income has to qualify, Mm -hmm. right? And then if they do buy, then sounds like they also have a different tax structure Mm -hmm. than somebody who owns a standalone single-family home uh, in Missoula on its own land. So does that mean that folks who buy a home like that are also paying less taxes?
2: It should, yes. Yes. They are still contributing to the tax base, but because the land is taken out, and usually, when you look at property taxes, there is more like the the structure has more value than the land. So you know, I think we still contribute like our homes and our homeowners still contribute a lot to the tax base. But if it was a You know, just a market rate home, they would pay more in property taxes compared to this. And there's a lot of benefits to community land trusts. One is is that it really encourages people to stay in their homes. You know, it's a long-term investment. Don't allow people to rent them out. Like this has to be their primary home. And according to HUD, like there's a definition for that. So that means you live in your home at least nine months out of the year. So if you wanted to leave for the summer or have a family member you need to go take care of and help for a couple of months like that doesn't you know that doesn't jeopardize those rules and it also I think especially in a place like Missoula where we see a lot of vacation rentals or absentee landowners or folks that just come to Missoula for like a few months out of the year you know maybe it's their second home community land trusts require that home ownership which is great for you know stabilizing a neighborhood or stabilizing a community because those are folks that are actually invested and present in that area yeah so i think that's a that's a huge community benefit i make all of the future homeowners meet with me ahead of time so we can have this conversation about like requiring it to be your you know primary home the other thing is i always tell people that you know you want at least plan to be in one of our homes for five years because there are costs to selling your home. There are things you have to consider and I think especially if you're a first-time home buyer, you don't think about that because you haven't been through that process yet and the way we make sure the home stays affordable in the long term is that we have a resale formula that caps your unearned equity that you can earn. So we say you can earn 1.5 percent per year of unearned equity which is different from your earned equity which is you know your down payment and what you're paying down on your mortgage that is all yours (laughs) as a buyer and what that means though is that you know there's a limited amount of profit you can make on a resale and if you only plan on being in that home for two years or three years you know, basically the cost of selling a home and the equity you're gaining is a wash. Just to be very, like, intentional about what purchasing a home means. And for the most part, people stay for a really long time. Of course, you know, people's lives change too. Maybe they get a better job somewhere else. And, you know, there's some unpredictability to the future. But to make sure that people are invested in, you know, staying in that home for a while... You know, I'm in my, my third year of having my real
1: estate license, and in the first couple of years, and I've always rented. I don't currently own a home. But in my first couple of years of having my license, it became so apparent to me that homeowners really care for their home mm-hmm. and where they live so much differently than renters do. And it became really apparent how a neighborhood filled with homeowners is, yeah, so much more tended to taken care of and stable than a neighborhood filled with renters. And I, I wouldn't say that mm. entire problem rests on the backs of the renters. I would also say that landlords <laughs> don't really incentivize renters a lot of times to take good care of the space they live in because the landlord themselves doesn't take good care of that yes. space. So when you're saying you know, that people who purchase a home need to stay in that home for five years, yes, to build equity if they're going to resell the home, to have some sort of profit or to make some money off of the home, great, but also the value of owning a home over renting is better neighborhoods, more stable neighborhoods, and um, people who care
2: (laughs) more. Yeah, I think it gives you the ability To have some control over your own life. You know, I live on the north side, which is one of the neighborhoods with the highest percentage of renters. And I was a renter on the north side. And I have to say that there is a disparity between the amount of impact you can have as a renter in your own environment. And that's not, it's not fair and a lot of that has to do with how invested in a lot of cases your landlord is in your neighborhood and if it's not their neighborhood too you know there's a there's a disconnect there and you're not going to care if your neighborhood you know the tenants probably care very much about whether you have sidewalks or street lights or all those amenities but if someone isn't using or living in that neighborhood you're not going to be as invested and i think that you know, this is an ability to be more anchored, I suppose, and also, you know, have a lot more say about the space you live in, you know, because I think, you know, whether it's like, you know, painting your walls, you know, those little things, like total little things, but just having a lot more self-direction than you're allowed many times in a rental situation. But yeah, I think one of the huge things is for me is I think a lot about transitions and you know moving up in that socioeconomic scale and it's really hard to transition you know into anything really like whether it's you're a renter transitioning into home or you know even if you're like homeless transitioning into being in rental housing like the transitions are hard and uh, funding often is like okay well this funding is for rental housing and this funding is for this and I don't think we track very well or even uh, create structures very well that help people move up you know and I know when we were on food stamps for example one of my friends was going to nursing school or her husband was going to nursing school and so they had access to a program that would help pay for their childcare. and so I was like okay I'll watch your kid, you know, and I could only get paid the reimbursement rate, like state level reimbursement rate for daycares, which was like four twenty-five an hour, you know, but I was home with my kids anyway, so I was like, all hey, right, you know, I like your kids. My kids like your kids, let's hang out. But then, you know, because it was you know, and then I had to she had to report that this program was paying me and then I had to report to our, you know, Snap person that I was getting paid four twenty five an hour. To watch this kiddo and in the end my food stamps got cut more than I was getting paid and you know it's that sort of thing where like we don't really create systems to enable people to move up easily like it takes a lot of thinking and planning and like navigating these systems to make those transitions and I think this is like a great system I guess or structure that kind of plugs in and you know we've had people use housing vouchers to purchase homes, and then instead of it paying rent to a landlord, it pays their mortgage and also allows, allows them to gain equity and then, you know, eventually transition, you know, and have some financial benefit to themselves instead of just passing it through to the landlord, which is super, I mean, that's super exciting, so.
1: It's a big deal when the monthly payment that you make to keep your living situation going <coughs> stays in your own let's say pool of money Mm -hmm. rather than going into someone else's pocket and funding someone else's lifestyle and if there's anything I've learned from the the several interviews that I've done already for the Zootown affordable housing podcast it's that the whole community benefits from people having stable places to live and I feel like that's what you're also saying and that's What I really want to hit hard here is that the whole community benefits by finding ways to give people who are overburdened and underserved or perhaps underprivileged stable places to live. If we figure out how to address that problem, the whole community benefits.
2: Yeah, and I think having predictability in your housing costs especially really helps. Because once you... Purchase a home that's a 30 year mortgage, and granted, like there's some fluctuations in your property taxes, probably, but there's a lot more predictability to that than your rents potentially being raised every couple of years or having to move because your rent has gone up. And so, my kiddos go to Lowell, and my daughter actually is a porter now, and we have stayed at Lowell like from kindergarten to fifth grade for her. And I think there are very few kids in that community who live in our district the whole time. I think um, I met with our principal recently and I think something like 50% of our students are retained and the other 50% you know, move around a lot. And, and that has huge implications on how teachers act in their classrooms and the challenges that teachers have with students. But also, you know, challenges for the students that stay and the students that move around a lot. And I think predictability and stability has so many benefits for all of our community members, including kids. And, you know, and then there's all the, the benefits of being able to be invested in your neighborhood and your space and uh, your school. You know, all of that, that really comes with stability. And um, it's a huge yeah, a huge social benefits that I think we don't often maybe think about. And I, I think this
1: is a good time to segue into the housing policy that Missoula signed in June of 2019, uh, making Missoula home, and... This housing policy is geared towards creating affordable housing in Missoula, and it recognizes that we currently have a housing crisis, Mm -hmm. that the cost of buying, purchasing a home has not only gone way up, it's gone up so high that even a a four-person family has trouble affording the average priced home. And I know that since I got my real estate license uh, until the current moment, the average price of of a home in Missoula was $260,000 when I started and in a mere 3 years later it's at 305. Yeah. So and I work a lot of side jobs and my income has not gone up at all and I am not the only one. Wages have not gone anywhere. So m- I have some questions for you regarding that policy. Number 1 have you seen any any changes so far since that policy was signed? And where do you see all of this going?
2: Oh man, there's so many ways. Uh, I think, well, I think a year is not a whole lot of time to see a whole lot of changes. But I think one of the more exciting things about uh, having a policy in place is really that it gives us a really solid jumping off point and, and things we can bet. Like having whether it's our growth policy or, or, you know, our zero waste plan or having all these guiding documents is, is really great because then you can vet individual projects and say, does this meet our goals as a community overall? I think one of the exciting things is that Missoula is really thinking about how to create financing mechanisms for affordable housing, um, having worked on a HUD-funded project, Lee Gordon Place uh, sold last spring, so spring of 2019, and that was like, I think it took us three years to develop overall, it was like my project for about a year and a half, two years of that. I kind of took it on midstorm, didn't know very much about what I was doing, but what I can tell you through that experience is that our funding sources are incredibly limited, from the federal government. And that's where most of our subsidy, whether it's for home ownership or rental, comes from these days. So we either have home, community development, block grants, or low-income housing tax credits. And those are kind of the three pots we have. And they're all decided on the federal level. And then the tax credits are then allocated on the state level, so it's competitive. You're competing against all of Montana. And the reality is, like, Missoula isn't the only community experiencing a housing crisis. Pretty much all of Montana is. And, you know, like, Montana is a beautiful place to live. And the housing prices across the state, for the most part, are incredibly high and often not in line with wages. And so it's really hard to go and sit through one of those allocations because every project you see is worthy. And then there's this whole, you know, it's not enough money. It's underfunded by millions of dollars. And these decisions are made on, like, where the funding's going, and there's just never enough. And then as far as CDBG and HOME go, at almost every legislative session, those are at risk of being cut. CDBG. CDBG, Community Development Block Grants, right? And so there, there are these kind of political tools, that get bantered around, and it's really challenging. Um, And so I think exploring ways and creating local funding sources that have more flexibility and we have more direct control over is huge. And I'm hoping that we'll figure out the best ways to fund that and then best ways to grow that. And I think the other really exciting thing is is that all of those funding sources that I just mentioned come with a lot of strings attached and, and kind of structural placement, I guess, like of where you get more points for locating your projects in low-income areas. And I don't think that concentrating low-income housing in low-income neighborhoods is really healthy thing for neighborhoods. I think we all know that people have better life outcomes, whether it's like kids or adults, if if we live in mixed income neighborhoods. And I think that taking some of that control and trying to get affordable housing throughout our community is to everybody's benefit. And so I think that, again, taking some of that control of like where affordable housing is built into the city of Missoula's realm equalizes where that development is going to happen potentially and also just is going to be better for like neighborhood health and people's life outcomes. I think the invest health work that's been happening I don't know if you people have talked about that a lot yeah but we got a Robert Wood jo- Johnson grant several years ago that has been looking at health equity and health outcomes in Missoula and there's this huge inequity in like people's health outcomes in our three most low-income neighborhoods compared to the rest of Missoula and there's lots of reasons of why that is it's you know a lack of built infrastructure whether it's sidewalks or streetlights or parks but also you know has to do with like housing stock and you know what the quality of the homes are and you know, that's correlated to people's asthma rates. And, you know, so there's all these structural things that we know aren't great for a community. And I think that, you know, A, recognizing that is huge, and then trying to figure out how we can impact the things that we can control, whether it's, like, sidewalks or making sure that we have city parks in those neighborhoods. You know, we can impact those things, but then it will have this ripple effect on people's health outcomes and future success, and so I think, yeah, just being able to make sure that we put affordable housing in all of our neighborhoods, I think is huge, so. What would you say
1: to, for example, uh, development services has a lot of regulatory structure in place that dictates how a structure can be built in Mm -hmm. Missoula, and I I heard you say that Financial institutions need to change how they're doing things, but I wonder if you see local regulation changing to make alternative structures or different kinds of structures than we've seen before more of a possibility.
2: Well, I think there's lots of room for improvement, always. <laughs> um, and I think that one of the things is uh, in the near future we can see a, a, maybe a revisiting of like how we do subdivisions I think we're seeing a lot of townhome exempt developments, so what we call TEDs. Lee Gordon Place was a TED. And I think that there's lots of reasons why developers choose that path over subdividing. One is that, you know, you can have smaller, they're not true lots, but you can have smaller parcel sizes. And so bringing these things in line with each other, I think, is a great step forward. I also. I think that there are some downsides that have to be considered when you're developing uh, potential downsides when you're developing TEDs that, especially on the larger scale, where you don't end up with public infrastructure. And while that can be an upfront cost-saving potentially because you're not going through the subdivision process, there are long-term costs to future homeowners to maintain those things, which I think it's always hard to look at that, long-term costs, especially if it's not going to be yours. (laughs) Does that make sense? (laughs) Um, And I think that those are things we really have to think about as a community. You know, there's a reason we have public infrastructure because things are expensive to maintain, for one thing, and and that allows, you know, cost-sharing over, whether it's for snow plowing or patching pavement, you know, it allows this communal cost-sharing essentially to rotate through all of these needs Um, and I think that is something that has been kind of overlooked I mean I think we've taken steps to address that but there's some other things that I could see there already have been some changes on like parking requirements for small townhomes or ADUs as long as they're within a you know a defined footprint I think it's 600 square feet right now and I would love to see us look at uh, parking requirements and home size and maybe expand that. Because I think if you had 800 square feet, for example, and you could just get away with one parking spot, all of a sudden you can build a home that maybe has three bedrooms and you know accommodate a larger family size with hopefully just one vehicle. Because parking is, it's expensive. <laughs> it's an expensive part of building a home. And, you know, hopefully people will. We are working really hard as a community towards a mode shift where people have more, you know, rely more on alternative forms of transportation, and hopefully people will shift towards maybe just having one car if they can reliably use the bus as, you know, a second way of getting around. So I think those things align with our long-term goals. I don't know that that's an immediate switch um, because it is, you know... I see a lot of infill projects in my neighborhood, and they have two parking spots, but they have three cars, you know? And so, but I think eventually that is something that will balance out, you know, kind of as habits change, hopefully.
1: The affordable so. housing question encompasses so much more than just housing, right? It's wages, it's transportation, mm-hmm. it's childcare. If you have a job in town but your affordable housing is miles away from it, then you have to have a car to, yep. to get to work. We have a free bus system and that is exceptionally commendable. But Missoula could go farther. I wonder when we're going to get a train system <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, <I> <laughs> going. Me
2: too. There's been lots in the media about getting passenger rail back recently, so I think the county commissioners are pushing for some passenger rail service again which i would love it would be dreamy. <laughs> i know i uh, I, my best friend lives in santa fe new mexico which is just the you know and we've got the burlington northern like santa fe whatever you know is on the side of the train cars and i know that the train goes from here to santa fe But you can't do it as a passenger. Coal
1: can go from here to Santa Fe, but But not people.
2: (laughs) And it's been it's been this thing that I just dream about having that uh, that ability to. I mean, you know, maybe here down the Bitterroot would be nice too. But you know that ability to travel by train. I mean, I walk from here to
1: Seattle, from here to Bozeman,
2: here to Washington (laughs) D.C. And I think I mean I walk over the train track every day to work, and I just I really wish that we had that option. Um, it was a real bummer. I tried to go see my best friend like right after we moved here, and I was like, I would have to go to Kalispell or Whitefish and then go through Chicago. Like, it was not a roundabout. It would have taken like a week to get, because I'd have to go through the middle of America or all the way down the West Coast, and then to Texas, and then to Santa Fe. It did not work. But yeah, I think really talking about those interconnected things is huge. And I think a lot of times it's a real shift from talking about like the price tag of a house because um, that's one thing to look at. But if you're having to drive, you know, a long distance to work, childcare is, you know, this huge other other thing is really um, looking at the, the housing holistically I think is hugely important and I think I wish in my work world or you know even in our housing policy like we don't really have a way to compensate for example for like the incredibly high cost of childcare in our town in in any of the metrics we have so I think that's a a really important thing to talk about and I think Missoula is also doing some really exciting work in that world but, you know, it's not a problem that's going to be solved anytime soon. Like, we know we've lost, I think it's something crazy, like two-thirds of our pro- providers since the 70s. You know, like, it's shrank. Like, the amount of options there has shrank incredibly over time. And then making sure it's quality, childcare, and affordable. I mean, that's, you know, it's almost, almost not even an option for most people. And there is a definition to, like, what affordable housing is. And often it gets thrown around like this term that doesn't have a definition. And so in my work world, the term affordable housing means that you can afford to live in your home and spend roughly 30% of your income on housing costs. And our community land trust serves people that make... 80 percent area median income and below and so whatever those wages are so for a family one I think that's or a household of one whether that's 42,100 right now and then it goes up with additional family members what you can earn and be considered 80 percent AMI and so 30 percent of whatever that number is is what you should be spending on your housing and for many people in Missoula that's not a reality I know when we first moved to Missoula and lived at Mud, my husband was making an AmeriCorps Vista stipend, and I, uh, we got a rent reduction because I did, like, a partial work trade to get $100 off of our rent, and I think his stipend was, like, just over $800, and we were paying 400 in rent, <laughs> you know? And then I had, I moved here with a kiddo, my daughter was 14 months old, and I had, you know, I landed in Missoula, and all of a sudden, I, you know, it was this trifecta of not being able to find a childcare spot for a kiddo under two. It's really challenging. And then also just not being able to find a job that paid enough to pay for that childcare. And so I just, you know, transitioned to being a stay-at-home mom till one of my kids was in kindergarten and the other went to Head Start. And then I started working part-time. But yeah, it was just this thing where, like, I could not make the math work to to balance out all those things. And it really came down to being, you know, do I want the stress of my life to work a full-time job to just pay childcare? And we would basically financially be in the same position or do I just stay home with my kids and you know we're in the same financial position but there's a whole lot less like balls to keep rolling and a whole lot less stress to deal with Um, which I feel very lucky that I you know not everybody can make that choice because like if you're a single parent like you don't get to make that choice and so yeah just having all those things always in mind the housing and the child care costs and transportation is just huge. Like you can't just talk about the number what about
1: you, Heidi? You're you're in City Council now and you hear all of our elected members of City Council talking about the affordable housing problem and addressing issues like For example, on 4th, right behind the bridge, there's currently this project with 40 units. And I heard that 20% of those units need to become affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And since we have this policy in place, I just read an article in The Missourian about it. So (laughs) since we have this policy in place, people are saying this project needs to include at least 20% of affordable housing. And the developer is saying we can do 15%, but otherwise the numbers don't work. And what do you see, you know, happening with, with projects like this? Or what do you, what would, what's your ideal scenario? My ideal, well,
2: I won't speak to Forest Street specifically since um, it hasn't, we're in weird, like, a quasi-judicial role when it comes to land use decisions. So, like, all of our conversations. Land, l- land use? Land oh. use, sorry. Um, uh, positions or decisions. And so, like, all of that has to kind of happen in the public sphere But we did pass part of this on, and the conditions right now do include 20%, but there'll be one more opportunity for public comment and for things to change. But right now, the conditions do have 20% affordable housing. I think that there are still some things we can create. Like I think it would be great to have some sort of a policy in place, that deals with, you know, right-of-way vacations and expectations of community benefit through those. So the reason we can even have the conversation about having 20% affordable housing at 4th Street is because the developer is asking for a right-of-way vacation.
1: And would you tell us what that is? Yeah,
2: so um, basically there are parts of town that have rights of way put over... Like although lots, you know, at the edges of lots potentially, um, and so those right of ways the city basically doesn't own, but holds in trust for public benefit. So it could have a sidewalk in it. It could be a right of way for a street, and they are not always built out. You know, uh, when Missoula was platted, you know, over a hundred years ago, parts of town were platted way back when, and it was just kind of this grid system that was. Plop down on top of the what's the word topology. Um, so some of the things just will never be streets, for example, because it's you know on super steep grade up the edge of Waterworks Hill, or you know Sentinel, or you know just not buildable space, and so, or at least not buildable for things like streets or sidewalks. And so every now and then, we see your. Right away vacations, and sometimes it's like, oh, this right away is like 60 you know, wider than the public infrastructure needs to accommodate. And so, um, there's a variety of reasons that could come before us, and they don't always lend themselves well to even having public benefits. But this isn't the first time we've attempted as a council to try and have public benefit in exchange for the right-of-way vacation the first time at least in my time on council that we've brought this up was when we saw a right-of-way vacation for otis street on the north side and it was going to be you know a a fairly large rental development and um, we started the conversation with staff you know we don't speak directly to the developers ever you know we talked to staff and then staff talks to developers you know it's like we aren't directly communicating with folks doing the work and so I started the conversation with like Aaron and staff and some other council members to try and get an affordability requirement on that project and it ended up the developer basically like took the project back and then reimagined it and it's turned into where Bellagio is now which is a um 200-unit, all-affordable rental housing that the housing authority is developing on the north side. And so while we've never explored what we are exploring right now, I think just having that conversation of affordable housing is a community benefit is super important. Um, But also moving forward, like uh, creating a policy of what those community benefits we're looking for I think would be super useful for us as a body and for staff to be able to vet projects and, you know, have those conversations from the get-go. So It it sounds to me
1: like what you're saying is that a policy should be in place so that if a property has something like a right-of-way vacation and the city allows the developer to build on that right-of-way f- vacation, then in exchange for being allowed to build on that right-of-way vacation by the city, the developer then needs to include some... Something.
0: something.
2: Yeah, and I think, I mean, a lot of times um, there are benefits that are, that are realized. So um, whether it's like a trail connection or... I mean, there usually is something if the site lends itself to, you know, or has those needs for the public there's usually something that comes out of it one example that i've also seen was the holiday village there was a street right away so that's where um joanne's fabric and like all those things are and there was a street right away vacation that was internal to the parking lot like physically none of it changed you know it's a parking lot you still drive through but there was a a street right away that was vacated and then the developer built out basically the sidewalk that runs along Brooks right there. Because, you know, this has been this like way too narrow, dangerous sidewalk for a really, really long time. And the, the right of way that existed for Brooks was too narrow to like make that wider and make it safer. And so these these things happen, you know, these right away vacations, there often are public benefit that happens as a result of them, and they're not always approved, (laughs) you know, that it's not a given. There's definitely, there's been a couple that I've seen in my time on council that uh, haven't been approved for a variety of reasons. I mean, because we do have goals as a community of having walkable neighborhoods and walkable blocks and connectivity between places, and so, um, you know, it is not a thing that wants it, if someone asks for it is guaranteed to be given because there are larger community goals at play. So if that makes sense. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, and then I think um I'll be really excited to see uh you know, where the the next round of 4th of Street too. Um I think there's a lot of there's been a lot of community involvement and um, really uh, a diversity of comments um, that are really, really informative and have been great. So, yeah. Heidi West, <laughs> I wondered if there's
1: anything that we haven't covered that you would like to add and where you see this going in the next couple of years.
2: I think that on a national and statewide level, we're really seeing a proliferation of community land trusts, um, which is exciting. So that's in my work world. Um, I think as a community, we need all the tools on the table. You know, we need affordable, quality, safe rental housing. And we need homeownership opportunities that are attainable to folks that are on more limited incomes. But the reality is we're also missing, you know, we're missing the middle, too, Uh, in Missoula. And so I think we need to really work on creating some mechanisms for creating housing that isn't subsidized already by home and CDBG. Because the reality is if you make 120% of area median income, there still isn't really a housing market for you. And that is something we can maybe encourage. I think the other thing we need to recognize is that if you bring a below market value unit to the market, you know, that's really risky because you have to be able to protect that price. And so, just bringing something to the market that's below market value without protecting it is risky because most likely someone who's maybe in the speculative market is just going to scoop it up and then take advantage of all that equity that's basically left out of that price and just resell it at a higher price point. And so I think we need to recognize that we need some market-side solutions. Like, we need more stock, but that's not going to solve the problem on its own. I think we need to make sure that, you know, we're building stock, but then we're also bringing homes to the market that are protected so we can create and maintain that middle and lower end housing market and then of course um, making sure that people have access to safe and affordable homes whether it's rental or home ownership is huge um, because I do think having lived in some really not the best maintained rental homes in Missoula you know I think a lot of times affordable naturally occurring Rental housing, you know, there's a reason it's more affordable, but, but then there's really expensive trade-offs, you know, because then you're paying a huge amount to heat it in the winter, you know, or it has mold, it, you know, there's all these other trade-offs that aren't reflected in the price, and so I think really making sure we talk about not just affordable, but also safe and quality housing is huge. I also think everybody you know usually loves where they live and we all come to housing with our own personal experience and I think one of my most eye-opening experiences on council early on was when we had a gentleman comment on the library block where you know where the new library is now and it was occupied with housing um mostly rental but these uh you know, fairly historic homes for Missoula. And some of them were really beautiful. And this um, gentleman came up and gave comments and was like, that is all substandard housing and I would never allow my child to live in any of those. And it was, like, soul-crushing. It was a soul-crushing thing to hear because at that point, like, all of those houses were nicer than, like, the house I was living in. You know, and I, at this point, had already purchased the house I was living in, and I was like, gosh, like, I have three broken windows, and, and it really, like, A, it hurt, and B, it really made me, like, second guess even inviting people to my home, because I was like, oh, I love where I live and can see, like, I know what my vision for this place is, and I know where I'm going. It's just going to take a really long time to get there. But it definitely changed how I felt people perceived my home. And I think that's really important when we talk about how we talk about people's homes to recognize that a what we consider quality housing is really relative. And the houses at 4th Street are, I will talk about those, a prime example, where they're kind of like little a affordable, and I've never been in them but there are lots of people in Missoula that are living in housing that is not as nice as those houses. And then there's lots of people that are also living in nicer housing. And so having that, that perspective and recognizing that it's so relative how we speak about homes, because it all is kind of based on our personal experience. And if we've had a really, I'll say it, like privileged experience and getting to always choose where we live and having like the financial freedom to like not just choose based on lowest price. You know, that's a whole different... It's just a different world. But it's it's really, I think, recognizing that there's a lot of lack of choice in housing in our community is huge. You're just reminding
1: me of something that Erin Payhan said that I'm just going to bring up, which is is loosely connected, but it's connected. She said that there's so many people in this town that are one to three months away from being bankrupt. One accident, one job lost, and they are not only you know out of housing, but not in a good spot, let's put it that, they're not in a good spot, but there's nobody who's three months away from being a millionaire, right? <laughs> and it's such a huge imbalance uh, in the system where it works for people who can pay, uh, and it really doesn't work for people who can't pay. And we look at people who can't pay and say, well, they should be able to pay. But you you said you're a millennial, right? (laughs) And millennials, as a population, are saddled with things that they have to pay every month that the generation prior to us wasn't, like student loan debt Mm -hmm. is the biggest thing that comes to mind right now. And one huge student loan payment a month replaces a housing payment basically let's say that i can't say how many people have told me that they cannot purchase a home right now until they pay off their student loan debts so realizing that our generation is dealing with completely different factors than the generation prior to us is a big place to start we need new systems
2: (laughs) yeah it's a huge barrier and you know in so many ways Especially when we were super low-income, like, I would spend a lot of time thinking about, like, what is the one wrong decision I made, you know, that that put us in this position? And the reality is there's no answer to that. There's no one choice. And in so many ways, my husband and I didn't have a lot of those disadvantages, which were incredibly lucky. So there's, like, these multitude of things, you know, that really enabled us to purchase a home, Many people do have more barriers, especially in our generation. And I listened to a lot of podcasts, and um, I was listening to one about how people don't remember all the good things in life that helped them get to where they are. People are much more likely to remember bad things. And so I think it's hard for us to recognize privilege when we have it. Because those are good things and we don't like we don't focus on them. Um, and I think uh, I hugely benefited from so my parents were low income too. My mom was a single mom and I'm the oldest of six kids. And in Oklahoma, if you go to a s- state school, basically in ninth grade, I enrolled in this program that had some attainable requirements, which was I had to keep a certain GPA certain attendance record and basically I was guaranteed five years of tuition at a state school and not every state has that this was I think it's mostly funded through oil money because we have a lot of oil you know and that narrowed my choice of where I could go but I knew I could go to college and not have student debt and it was a huge huge benefit and I ended up getting two degrees (laughs) political science, and studio art. But, you know, and then especially when we ended up in Missoula, we came from Oklahoma, which at the time had the second lowest cost of living in the nation. And moving to Missoula was a huge reality check, of you know, that we totally weren't prepared for. And, you know, even when we were making very little income, the fact we didn't have student loans, we also had to repay at the same time, I mean, it, it was a game changer because, you know, even while we weren't making a lot of money, we weren't having to pay that, you know, student loans for the next foreseeable future. I mean, that's something that I'm constantly thinking about because I think that reality, even for my younger brothers and sisters, they have a lot more debt than I graduated with and so I think even just within like I'm 10 years older than my youngest sister and just like the shift between those 10 years of what financial burdens people graduate college with has shifted considerably yeah and I think that it is really important to recognize that's not necessarily shared reality there is so much privilege in homeownership like it's Insane, because once you make that leap, like I, it. it granted, like you could still lose it all. If, you know, there's risk too. Um, but once we purchased our home, you know, we could take advantage of the fact that we live in a inflating market. You know, and so like we purchased, like a, I mean, really like a really rundown house, but. From the time that we bought it to the time that we borrowed against the value of that home. The value of it, on paper, like I didn't even have the bank come out to look at it. It went up $60,000. And so that, once you're a homeowner, there's just so many tools you can leverage. I think about that a lot. Because, like, if we didn't have that opportunity, I don't know if we'd still be here. Not because we don't love Missoula but because I think it would be so much harder to make Missoula work. And I did look at other houses in that process of like, is this the right choice for us? And I ran so many numbers and I looked at so many homes and what we could afford. And the reality was if I was to sell our house and then buy a fixer upper, like all that equity we gained would just go into the other house and then we would have no money left to actually fix it you know and so that is one thing that I think people like our market is so challenging right now that like people also get stuck and I think that you know not everybody is as crazy as we are to like be like all right well we're just like buying a school bus and living in it for seven months and we're gonna learn how to tile bathrooms and lay floors and you know fire the house and do like just like we're insane <laughs> I i think because missoula is kind of awesome <laughs> you know people really go to extreme lengths to try and stay here i mean housing's a huge thing even when it comes to like having a vibrant community that has like artists and musicians and you know little nonprofits that are starting up you know like i think um trying to maintain you know, a healthy, creative community is also really hard when housing prices go up. And that's part of what makes Missoula such a great place to be, is that we do have all of those aspects. Like, we have access to outside spaces, and we have really creative folks, and we have things like the Clay Studio and the Zach, and all these, like, really vibrant organizations, and housing's a huge part of that. So,
1: anyway. I'm Missoula. Won't be quite the same place if the musicians, artists, and other creative folks don't have a place to live. Yeah. So you at one point were very active on the north side, and that's kind of how you got into politics, right? There was an issue that you saw that needed addressing, and you got after it. And I wondered what you would say to people now who uh, look at the housing crisis in Missoula and don't know how to get involved, don't know what to do, but everything that's in place is fairly prohibitive to the creation of real affordable housing, and what would you recommend to people who want to do something?
2: Oh man, (laughs) that's a big question. I think um, there has to be a recognition that everybody needs to be a part of the solution, and I think that means different things in different neighborhoods. Um, I think our neighborhood demographics can be vastly different depending on what part of town you're living in. You know, I think looking, you know, at income disparity between neighborhoods or even, you know, your ratio of home ownership to rentals. I think there needs to be, I guess, more diversity there and maybe some equalization. <laughs> I think just being against projects in general isn't always a good way to move forward. I think that things are a lot more complex and figuring out how to support like how each you know, neighborhood fits into long-term goals and how we can get to like yeses and those yeses can look different because the reality is we need all sorts of housing like there isn't just one thing we need and i think that that what those yeses are like defining those is huge i also think that people you know are kind of the experts of their own neighborhood and that is something that people need to recognize as value if that makes sense when I was a stay at home mom, I got this random phone call because somebody had passed my name on to a grants administrator at the county who happened to be working on a <laughs> on a grant for a playground in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And it was a really interesting thing because I, I think a lot of times a person at a desk might not necessarily know who like user groups are of a neighborhood park or mm-hmm. and and so I had this whole conversation with her and I was like, you know, the kids I see are mostly this age group and their latchkey kids and we need stuff that supports you know their age group which was very different from you know maybe their perception of the park and where it fit in and so I think knowing that you're kind of the expert of what's happening in your neighborhood and what your needs are and knowing that that's valuable information is huge <laughs> I mean, it's such a little thing, and I don't think people think about it that way. But really, you know, communicating those things to people when they need that information is, is super valuable.
1: Rec- people recognizing that they're an expert on their own neighborhood is valuable information, is what you're saying. Maybe they can do with that information what they will, but um, hopefully get involved. <laughs> Heidi West... Thank you so much for your time and speaking with me and contributing to the Zootown Affordable Housing podcast. I haven't found any easy answers so far.
2: Well, yeah. Let me know if you do.
1: <laughs> I will. I'll be sure to.
2: <laughs> well, and thanks for reaching out. I like to talk about housing and community and like neighborhoods, and I think there's a reason. We picked Missoula to be home, and I think there's reasons many people do, and um, I like talking about it, so.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to ZAP, the Zootown Affordable Housing Podcast. We were just speaking with Missoula City Council member and NMCDC coordinator and community organizer, Heidi West. I hope you enjoyed this episode and find yourself more informed than before. If you or anyone you know would like to contribute an interview, if you want more information about each episode, or to find out how to support ZAP, please visit rebecca.kelly.podbean.com. Special thanks to Chris Moyles with Starlight Reunion Studios for your invaluable time and help with production of this podcast, and also to Missoula Community Radio for your ongoing mentorship and open learning platform.
0: to town affordable housing podcast affordable is stable afford means that you're able to make your wages last through debt rent or expenses while even retaining some senses stability with the ability Retainable, but trainable. oh hello information, help believe this situation, and zap, so many alternatives, so many voices, filled with ideas on how to live, start making choices, that improve the collective, and incentivize creation, and from promote collaboration.